Well, this morning we're, we're turning back to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be at the end of chapter 3. And this is a very pivotal point in this letter. Um, what we're going to be covering is really a transition. Because when we think about the letter of Ephesians, the first three chapters are often thought of as theology. This is the theology of Ephesians, and then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are the commandments. So we have three chapters of theology and three chapters of commandments. And I think it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but for the most part, it works as a kind of a high-level breakdown of that book. But as we get to the end of chapter 3, um, we're closing to the end of Paul's um, theological teachings, and, and he's going to close out in a magnificent prayer um, that takes into account all that he has covered in these first three chapters and really lays the, the, the groundwork for chapter 4 when we see the main commandment of Ephesians, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And this is important because when I think about the church today, one of the greatest threats to any Bible teaching church one of the greatest threats to any church that holds to biblical teaching is the danger of legalism. We know the truth, we understand the truth, but sometimes we can apply the truth backwards. We can start to hold ourselves and everyone else to a standard of checklists rather than reminding ourselves of the reasons why those commandments are important. Legalism is when we start to make the letter of the law more important than the intent of the law. And for us, we always want to be mindful that, of course, obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ is critical. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That is very much true. But what we often forget is that Jesus Christ started off that statement with, if you love me. And so our love of our Lord Jesus Christ has to be our motivator. It has to be what drives us to wanting to fulfill these commandments. Otherwise, if we lose out on the reason why we do these commandments, then we will just become nothing more than legalists. Our joy, our, our joy will be robbed from our faith, and uh, we'll be really no different than any false religion that seeks to set up a list of rules for you to follow in order to prove that you're a good person. But if anything, this letter of Ephesians reminds us that we are not good people, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that we followed after the lusts and desires of our flesh and of our mind. And that it was only because God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he is the one that made us alive again, again and raised us up with Jesus Christ. It is a reminder to us that the salvation that we enjoy had nothing to do with what we did, because all we did was deserve judgment. And had everything to do with what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's for these reasons why we have to spend the time that we do in sections like Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, studying the theology. A lot of people rebel against learning theology. A lot of people will say, just tell me what to do. I don't need to hear all this theology. I don't need to try to understand things that are difficult to grasp. I just need Jesus Christ and then Jesus Christ and then just tell me what to do and I'll be set. And that sounds good, except that you run the risk of legalism. You see, theology, when properly understood, serves as the antidote to legalism because theology helps to inform us of who God is, why he acted, how he sustains us, and the promises that we have for all of eternity. 
And so by the time we get into chapter 4 and start getting into all the commandments of Ephesians, then it becomes clear why these things are important. It's not because we're just trying to follow through a checklist of things to do, but rather because we are motivated by all that God has done for us. And we come to an understanding of what it is, what, what a great and blessed opportunity we have to be able to glorify him just in our own walk. So we certainly want to emphasize obedience, but we don't want to do it to the point of legalism, which means that when we think about our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, we also have to think first and foremost about the love that God first showed for us, that he first showed us, and the love that we ought to show to him on that account. Because in the future, when we're in eternity with God, when we're in the eternal state and we're experiencing all the blessed creative powers that God has for us, the rewards, the glory, being in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a blessed time of praise and worship, and there will be no other place we would rather be. And certainly for those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will have an eternity, but it will be an eternity of torment. And so as we consider what it is that we deserved and what it is that we actually got, let that be the motivation for us to do what is good and honoring before our Lord. So this morning's message, this is Paul's prayer for divine enablement. We'll be covering Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, as you see in your bulletin. And our purpose is to understand from Paul's prayer the most essential necessities from God required to empower the church to fulfill his will. Now, the reason why we are looking for the most essential necessities from God is not only that we're trying to combat legalism, but we need to understand that it's by God's power that we can do his will. God is the one that supplies us with the power to do what is good and right before him. It's not on our own efforts. It's not by our own merit. It's not by anything good that we've done, but it's because of the power that God makes available to us. And we see that in Paul's prayer. You will see that just as all three of these chapters have lifted up what God has done for us, even the prayers of Paul continue to lift up what God continues to do for us in fulfilling his will. And so we're looking for the most essential necessities from God required to empower the church to fulfill his will. Now, as I mentioned before, this uh, section that we're going to read, this is a transition from the first three chapters to the last three chapters. And if you remember from chapter one, chapter one ended in a prayer from Paul. And this prayer here at the end of chapter three really kind of serves as an extension of that prayer. But we'll take a look at that as we go through. Let's go ahead and read through this section, Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 21. Paul writes this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now our first section for this morning, as we take a look at these 
verses in greater depth. The first, and this is going to be a four-part message, but the first part is titled, The Humble Address to God the Father. The Humble Address to God the Father. And we'll be looking at the first two verses for this first section. Verse 14 starts off with this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now, when he says for this reason, it's a reminder to us that he actually was going to start this prayer back in verse one of chapter three. In verse one of chapter three, if you just look in your Bibles, it says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And as he was about to start that prayer, he then diverts to explain why he is a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. He goes back to recall how he was called. He goes back to really show the grace of God working in his life to make him a minister of this wonderful, this wonderful mystery um, that uh, he was made a minister of. That, that Jews and, and, and Gentiles are now one new man, that they're united together, that all people are united together. And really that, uh, that, that prayer that he was going to start at the beginning of chapter 3 built off of the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, 11 to 22, really went into how we've been made one new glorious man in Christ. That it's no longer about Israel being the family of God. It's not just about Gentiles, but both of them are coming together, being made into a temple of God. They're now in the household of God, being made into one new man. And of course, when we think of that, that also built off the prior section, which is the start of chapter 2, which is where Paul reminds us that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And that God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And then that built off of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, where Paul lifted up a prayer for you to know, he wanted you to know the hope of your calling, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and the power of God that is made available to you that is working regularly. And he closes off by showing how that power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. And so all this is tied together, chapters 1, 2, and 3, it all builds off each other. And now it climaxes here in chapter 3. So that's why he starts off with, for this reason. And so now he's going to tell us this prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now when he says, I bow my knees before the Father, you might be surprised to find out that of the many prayers that Paul mentions in the Bible, this is the only time he mentions bowing his knee. In all other prayers, he doesn't mention it. Not to say that he doesn't do it, but this is the only time that he actually mentions bowing his knee in prayer. So he's bowing his knee in prayer. And this is significant because while we often think of prayer as being on our knees, it's actually there's actually good reason to think that the standard posture of prayer was standing at that time. If we take a look at um, some of these verses coming up, Mark eleven twenty five, Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And then the next verse I have up here, Luke 18, verse 11. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 11 says the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then verse 13 
But the tax collector, again, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, the truth is, you can be in any kind of posture while you're praying. You, you can see all kinds of examples throughout the Bible. Sometimes people are laying down. Sometimes people are standing. They're walking. They're on their knees. Um, they might be flat on their face in a complete prostrate, uh, prostrate position. Um, so there, there can be in a number of different positions that you can be in while praying. But when Paul bows his knee, there is special significance to this. And you can think of just today when we have a request for someone. I mean, we make requests of each other all the time. But when someone really wants to beg for a request and let you know that this request is so important to him or her, and they're willing to beg for their request, you will often see them get down on their knees to show just how important this is to them, to, to put themselves in, in a position of, of submission and, and just of earnest desire. And so that's what Paul is doing here when he says that he bows his knee. This is expressing his earnest desire for this prayer that he is about to lift up. And if we look at the next verse on the screen, I just want to remind you that just last week we saw Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, in which we read, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This is saying that we have confident and we have boldness and confident access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Paul just got through saying that. And what that meant is that we can go at any time and speak freely to our Lord our God. And we can speak to him as our father and make our requests known. So as Paul is saying that he's bowing the knee, he's not bowing the knee because he's desperate or he's not sure that God is going to answer this. No, he's confident of God's ability and willingness to answer prayers. But him bowing the knee just shows how earnest this prayer is to him, just how important this is to him, how much he desires what he is about to pray for. And the fact that he says, I bow my knees before the father he could have easily said, I bow my knees before God. I bow my knees before the creator. But when he calls God father, this was very unusual for Jewish people. And we know Paul was of a Jewish background. But he had come to recognize that God was indeed his father. We are children of God. We are in the household of God. God loves us and cares for us as his father. And so this should be an encouragement to us to go to him as often as possible with our requests with our prayers, with our communion on a regular basis because he wants to hear from us. He cares for us deeply. Now, as we go to verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15. So we saw in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And verse 15 says, from whom every family in earth and on, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, what does this mean? From every family in heaven and on earth um, derives its name. There are two positions to this, two positions. One is that this verse is referring to only those who are saved because we know not, not everyone's going to be in heaven. We already know that from in the beginning of chapter two that those who have not been saved are considered children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And we know from chapter one that we've been adopted. We've been adopted into God's own household. So there are good theological reasons for why this would be referring only to the redeemed. The second position is that this is referring to everyone, period. And while there are good theological reasons for this to refer to just the redeemed, when we look at this verse again, verse 15, there's no such qualifier to say that this is only referring to those who are saved. 
So what does this mean when Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name? Well, just as a, just, just to, to let you know that the Greek, the Greek word for family here, there, there's actually multiple different words that can be used for family in the Greek. And the word here is uh, patria. And the reason why that's significant is patria, it sounds like father, which is pater. So he mentioned, he mentioned how he bows his knees before the father from whom every family. So he meant he bows his knees before the pater from whom every patria in heaven and on earth derives its name. And this word for family, each word that, that, um, that can be used in the Greek emphasizes something different. In this case, the word used here emphasizes the idea that everyone derives from either a common ancestor or a common source. So in other words, um, in, in one place uh, in, in the gospel accounts, uh, we see a reference to the family of David. Well, the family of David referred to everyone who has come forth from David. So it all, they all trace back to a common um, ancestor, which is David. And in this case, when we think about God being the source, when we think about God being the creator, he is certainly responsible for the creation of every living being who has ever lived, every living being who will live. And not just us as humans, but even angels. So when he mentions here every family in heaven and on earth, he's talking specifically of everyone who came from him as its source. So it could very well be referring also to even angels and demons. Everyone originated from God. God created all things. There is nothing that exists today that did not come from the creation of God. But is this saying then that everyone is saved? Because it says from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Well, no, this is where we want to get into what really this, this word name means, because we often think of name as just a label. But when we look at this slide here, the significance of a name is much more than just a label. It often conveyed much more about that person or God's use of that person. So we use name as just a way of calling each other, but it actually had real meaning. So just to pull up a few examples here. As an example, Abram. Abram, we know, is the forefather of the Israelites. In fact, he is our spiritual father as well. Abram in Hebrew means great father. But in Genesis 17, 5, he was actually renamed to Abraham. Why? Because Abraham carries the meaning great father of many. And the idea is that he wouldn't just be a father to one nation, but he'd be a father to a multitude of nations. The next example is our own Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the Old Testament, that's the name Joshua or Yeshua. Jesus has the meaning God saves. God saves. And you see that in Matthew 1.21 when Mary is instructed to name her son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then the third example I have here is Nabal. Nabal acted like his name. He was essentially a fool. When David went and needed food, he went to, um, he went to Nabal's farm area, the, the area where he had all of his sheep and he grew all of his food. And he and his people were in need of food and he had treated his sheathers well, um, the Nabal's sheathers, and had uh, some messengers sent to Nabal and say, can you bring us food because we're in need? And Nabal's response was, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? I don't care about this guy. And of course, by that time, David was already king over all of Israel. It's a very foolish thing for Nabal to do, but it's very funny to think that in Hebrew, his name actually means fool. He actually lived up to his name. He lived up to his name. You can find that in 1 Samuel 25. And then the next example, we have 
Again, returning back to Jesus, the child born of a virgin was to be named Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means? Yeah, God with us. Now, what's interesting, though, is that no one in the New Testament refers to Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, right? He's called Jesus. He's called Lord. He's, he's called many things. But the only time we see Emmanuel show up is at the very beginning when he is born. But the name in this case is meant to show us that Jesus Christ was not just the God who saves, but by carrying the name Emmanuel, even though we weren't calling him that, he in essence was God with us. And so name carries a lot of significance going back to Hebrew culture. And so when we look back at verse 15 again, and we see from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, it's just the idea that everyone, everyone finds its source in God the Father. Everyone. And so Paul is acknowledging that God is the creator of all life. And so as he's going to God in prayer, this is a humble address to God the Father. When he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He is going to God with absolute respect, recognizing that he is the creator of all living beings. Recognizing that what he is about to bring before God, he is going to bring in all earnestness. He is pleading for God to meet this request. And that brings us to the second section of our sermon. The first was the humble address to God the Father. And now what we will see is the content of Paul's prayer, starting with the request for strength in the inner man. The request for strength in the inner man. Taking a look at verse 16, Paul goes on to say that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So he would grant you this. That's pretty clear that Paul is asking that God will give to you. He will give to you according to the riches of his glory. Now, when Paul says according to the riches of his glory, we've seen this phrase riches and glory a few times already in the first three chapters of Ephesians. But the idea of riches and glory is that God has an abundance I mean, he has there, there's an abundance of, of his glory and riches that that he has. He has an unlimited supply of wealth here. And when Paul says that he wants God to give according to the riches of his glory, it's commensurate. It, it is is in proportion with all that he has, as opposed to just giving out of his um, giving giving to you out of his riches and his glory. Because if he just gives out of you, gives out of his wealth, he can basically just give you any amount. You can go to a very wealthy man, you can go to a millionaire and ask for a donation um, for whatever it is you want to ask a donation for, and he might just give you 10 cents. And you might look at that guy and say, wow, this guy is really cheap. That is not someone who is giving according to their wealth, but simply just giving out of their wealth. Or you can go to someone who really doesn't make a whole lot of money, but they're willing to give you a very generous sum in order to support your ministry. That is someone who is giving according to what they have. So Paul here is asking for God to give in accordance with the riches of his glory. And what is it that he's asking for? It's this. It's to be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power. Now, when we think of being strengthened with power, we've seen this in other places in Ephesians. Right there, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, and he wants you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. 
This is Paul's request for us to know the power of God. This is the same power of God that he would go on to describe as having raised Jesus and seated him at the right hand of God. And then we saw it again in Ephesians 3, 7. Ephesians 3, 7 says, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So Paul not only talks about the power that is available to us that raised up Jesus Christ and seated him at the right hand, but he also talks the power about the power that actually made him a minister, that made him, of all people, a persecutor of the church, someone who could actually go and minister the good news to Gentiles. And then when we look at the rest of that verse, it says, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, what do we mean by through his spirit in the inner man? Well, through his spirit, obviously this is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift, as a pledge. We saw that back in chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is given us to us as a pledge, but it says through his spirit in the inner man. What is the inner man? Well, we have an outer man and we have an inner man. The outer man is the physical self. It is our flesh. It is, it is our actual physical bodies. The inner man would be our spirit. Not to be confused with the Holy Spirit. We all have a spirit, an inner man. It's the mind, it's the heart, it's where we, where we do our thinking, it's where our emotions come from, our desires come, in, come from. It all comes from the inner man. But we are given the Holy Spirit as a gift in order to strengthen that inner man, in order to sanctify us from the inside. It's just like when Jesus Christ told the woman at the well that God is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. The idea is that they would be worshiping from the inside, but also on the outside, according to the truth. And when we look at Ephesians 3.13 up there on the screen, we're reminded that Paul had, in the last section that we read, he told the Ephesians, I ask you, therefore, not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Consider what Paul is doing here. Because Ephesians 3.13, he's telling them that, look, I've been made a minister for your sake. Everything that's happening to me is for your glory. Don't worry about my imprisonment. God is in complete control, and he's going to accomplish all of his good purposes. So do not lose heart. And not only is he saying do not lose heart, but now he's lifting up a prayer that from the inside you will be strengthened. You will be strengthened by the Holy Spirit according to the riches of God's glory. You will be strengthened by God's power. And then as we continue on in verse 17, verse 17, we see, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, whenever we see the words so that, it can either refer to purpose or result, commonly one of those two things. And in this case, I would say this is a result of what he had just said. So really, as we go through this prayer, Paul is really progressing his thought. Each new thought that he brings out builds on the prior one. And when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that builds off what he had just said, that you are to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Because as you're being strengthened by, by the Holy Spirit in the inner man, meaning that you're being, you're being made more godly, you're being made more holy, you're being made more like Christ, as you are progressing in your sanctification, in line with that, Christ is also dwelling in your hearts through faith. Now, this can be a confusing term because when we think about Christ dwelling in our hearts, the first reaction might be, wait a second, Christ is already dwelling within us. Why is Paul praying that Christ may dwell 
in our hearts through faith. Well, the word here for dwell is a little bit different from the normal word. The normal word for dwell is oikeo, and the word used here adds a preposition in front, and the preposition has the word down. It's kata, katoikeo. So it's basically down dwelling. And what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is really to, to get settled in. It's the idea of really getting settled into a place rather than just dwelling. So there's a special emphasis here of Christ settling in. But what does that mean when we say Christ is settling into our hearts? Well, let me give you an example, and we're going to look at an example that has to do with the Holy Spirit. When we take a look at uh, up on the screen, Ephesians 5, verse 18. 5, verse 18, it's a little bit of an example from the same book, except this time looking at the Holy Spirit. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, technically it says with the Spirit. I believe it should be translated by the Spirit. We'll get there eventually, and I'll explain all that to you when we get there. But here, when we look at this verse, we already have the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit if we already have the Holy Spirit? So it's the same kind of idea. We have the Holy Spirit. Paul's already said we've been sealed by the Spirit as a, as a promise of our inheritance. But we, we have the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Well, there's a lot that it means, and we'll get there. When we get there, we'll go into more detail. But one way that we can be filled by the Spirit is Ephesians 4.13 is to certainly not grieve the Spirit, right? Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So there is a sense in which we have the Holy Spirit, but there are things that we can do to grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 has a similar idea. Do not quench the Spirit. So while all of us, if we have truly confessed Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, we have the ability, while we have the Holy Spirit, we actually have the ability to either quench or to, to, to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we're quenching the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit, we are not walking in a way that we ought to walk with God. We are not fulfilling what God has called us to do. We are not living up to the potential that God has for us in our lives. So there, there's a sense in which we want to be filled by the Spirit. And one of the ways that we are filled by the Spirit is not to grieve or to quench. And then Colossians 3.16 this is what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving your hearts to God. And I bring up that verse because now Paul here is talking about how he wants the word of Christ to dwell richly within you. Well, we have access to the word of Christ. Many of you know the words of Christ. Many of you have verses that you have memorized. You have read the scriptures. But there's a difference between reading and understanding versus letting these words actually dwell within your hearts. To meditate, to really think upon how they apply to your lives. And so when we come back to this thought of Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, it's this idea that we are, we are growing in Christ. We are putting aside sin. We're doing all that we can to glorify God with our lives. We are, we are taking account of our time. We're being, we're being good stewards of all that God has given us. We're taking those opportunities to share the gospel. We're taking those opportunities within the body of Christ to, to build up one another, to edify one another, to pray for one another. And we're constantly in the word seeking to know more about God in a more deep level. So the idea here is this, that Christ dwelling in your hearts is that Christ is at the very center of your lives. He's at the center of your lives, informing your every action and decision. 
And you guys know who I'm talking about. When you look at certain people within the body of Christ, you can look at a person and say, that is a very godly individual. That is a very Christ-like individual. That is a person that, that, that just shines forth the glory of God. And this is the idea for us. We want our lives to reflect the glory of Christ. We want to be walking in the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when the world looks at us, we don't do it for them. We do it for the glory of God. But when the world looks at us, they should be able to see Christ. It's just like what Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It should be the same for us with fellow believers and even for non-believers who don't know God. But they should be able to see that there is something different in our lives that makes us holy. But that brings us to the end of the request for strength in the inner man. And it brings us to the next section, which is the request for knowledge of Christ's love. The request for knowledge of Christ's love. And as we continue in verse 17, we read this. Starting in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, being rooted and grounded in love. Now, that's a beautiful statement. That's a beautiful sentiment. But what does that mean for us? How does that translate to us? Well, it's interesting. Paul uses rooted and grounded. He's using both an agricultural term and an architectural term. An agricultural term and an architectural term. The agricultural term is rooted. Okay, it's the idea. It's like, it's like a plant that's, that's firmly planted, rooted, so that, that it can bear fruits. And grounded is, is the idea of a foundation. When you're, when you're building a building and you want a firm foundation underneath that building. And so Paul here is saying that you, and the assumption here is that you're being rooted and grounded in love. His assumption is that this is already happening with believers. That you are rooted and grounded in love. But when we say rooted and grounded in love, what love are we talking about? Well, this is the love that God has demonstrated for us. This is the love that Jesus Christ has demonstrated for us. This is the love that has already been explained throughout Ephesians. Starting in chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says that, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is, this is helping to pray for us and that we would know the, the, the power of God that is available to us, the same power that raised up Jesus Christ. This is chapter 2 when Paul talked about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So we see plenty of examples of this love. And it, there's no one right or wrong answer, whether it's in terms of God's love or if it's Christ's love, because I would argue that they're inseparable. Whether it's God's love or whether it's Christ's love. And you see there on the slide, God's love is inseparable from Christ. Because when we look at Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, once again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So this is saying that the blessings that God has poured out upon us, the, the, the fact that he has chose us, that he has predestined us to adoption as sons, this was out of the motivation of love, to demonstrate his love. But you can't divorce that from Jesus Christ's role in all this. 
And right there, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And on the flip side, even when we stay in the letter of Ephesians, we see Jesus Christ's love as well. Jesus Christ's love is inseparable from God's love. So going to the next slide, we'll take a look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. This is the instruction to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also what? Love the church. And how did Christ love the church? How did he demonstrate that? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In chapter one, Paul talked about how God chose you to be holy and blameless before him. And he did that out of love. Here, he's saying that Jesus Christ loved the church and died for the church in order that the church would be holy and blameless. And then Ephesians 3.19, we're about to get there, but Ephesians 3.19 even says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So when we're talking about being rooted, when we're talking about being rooted and grounded in love, it is simply the love of God, whether it's the love of God the Father or the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are inseparable for, from one another. And as we continue on, verse 18, verse 18, he has this, this, this next request. So having being rooted and grounded in love at the end of verse 17, he says this, that he prays that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Now, what's interesting here is that he mentions these four different types of measurements, but he doesn't give us an object. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what? Of what? Well, first, before we talk about that, let's talk about this idea of being able to comprehend. To be able to comprehend, literally in the Greek, this is to have the power to grasp to be given the power from God to be able to grasp something. That's what's being translated as being able to comprehend. The idea here is that for you to comprehend, God needs to give it to you to be able to comprehend it. God needs to give you his power, his illumination through the spirit to be able to comprehend, to be able to understand. So you have no ability aside from the power that God gives to you. So to be Able to have the power to comprehend with all the saints. These are all believers. These are all people that have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And we get to what is the depth, what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, when it comes to these four metrics, um, there's a lot of possibilities that this could be referring to. And commentators are kind of all over the place on this. Um, but there are four possibilities, and I'm not going to go through them in detail. Um, because quite honestly, I think they're too detailed. Uh, but the four possibilities, one is that he is talking about power, the breadth, length, height and depth of power. Now, that makes some sense because Paul has been emphasizing power uh, throughout this letter. The other possibility is he's talking about the mystery, the, the mystery of God. Now, that would make some sense because as you read through chapter two in the beginning of chapter three, Paul makes reference to the mystery of God, which is Gentiles are now part of the household of God, along with believing Jews. There's also this idea of wisdom, because earlier on, earlier on in this chapter, Paul mentions the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God. 
And there are many uh, verses you can go to that talk about the height and the depth of wisdom and, and those kinds of things. So wisdom certainly would make theological sense. But the arguments are very complex. They're, they're very kind of further down into the details than we need to be. And typically, if there's a simpler answer, I would like to opt for the simpler answer. Because in this case, when we take a look at this verse, well, we just got through chapter 17 when Paul talks about being rooted and grounded in love. And verse 19, he goes on to say, and to know the love of Christ. So I believe the best answer here, when he talks about the, the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, he's talking about the love of God. That he wants us as believers to understand all these metrics. And when he mentions these metrics, it doesn't mean we pull out a ruler and start measuring things. What he is saying is that God's love is so vast. It is, it is limitless. You can never fully plumb the depths of his love. You can never fully comprehend all the ways that he has loved you. And so he's talking about the vastness of God's love, and yet he wants you to be able to grasp this. He wants you to be able to grasp this. And then when we continue on to verse 19, verse 19, then he adds, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So this really builds off what he has just said when he talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And the implication is love. Because in verse 19, he says, he wants you to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now get this, because this is very interesting. No, this is with our mind. Anytime you're called to know something, it re requires your mind. It requires thought. It requires meditation. It requires reading and studying the word of God, your scriptures. But what's interesting is he says he wants you to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. See, normally we seek to know in order to have knowledge. But here Paul is saying he wants you to know that which even surpasses knowledge. Now, that, what that means is not only are we to read the scriptures and to understand it. And when we think about the love of God, I mean, that, that has been explained in many different ways, as I mentioned. All the spiritual blessings from heaven, the fact that God saved us out of his mercy and, and grace, the fact that he has made one new man out of Jews and Gentiles and adopted them into the same household of God. There's a lot of God's love spread out all through these first three chapters of Ephesians. But Paul is saying this because Paul, if, if you remember, if you got your books open, look at chapter one real quick. Chapter one, verse 17. You may remember in this first prayer from Paul it was very much centered around knowing, around knowledge. In verse 17, and I don't have it on the slide, but if you follow with me, verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul wants us to know these things because you know what it is that makes Paul such an incredible soldier for Christ? You know what it is that drives Paul forward amidst all opposition, against all persecution, against all obstacles that may be in his path? You know what it is that allows Paul to endure so faithfully? It's the power of God through the knowledge that Paul has of God. And Paul wants us to know what he knows. And Paul, you know, throughout these chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he can't stop praising God. 
In fact, chapter 3 is going to end with the ultimate praise to God. But he can't stop praising God, and this in spite of the fact that he is a prisoner. He is a prisoner. He is locked up. He is in chains. He has been for years. And he's waiting for an opportunity just to be able to share the gospel with Caesar. Paul is able to endure these trials with such great joy, amidst such great tribulation, because he knew the greatness of God. And that's what motivated him. That's what carried him forth. So to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, as we continue to grow, as you continue to study, as you continue to absorb these messages, as you continue to learn new things just through the scriptures, just through your day-to-day lives, as you're applying truths and you're starting to see how various scriptures apply to your various walks of life, as you start to grow in that capacity, you start to experience more and more and more of the love of Christ. I remember just talking to someone here. One of you is a, is a Bible teacher and was telling me about how you went back to 1 John 4 and couldn't believe as you were reading 1 John 4, you've read this so many times and now you've gone to it again and boom, it just explodes before you. And, and that person was in tears just to how beautiful that chapter became. That is to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That is to continue to grow in the grace of God into the Christ-likeness of his Son. And then as we complete verse 19, we see this, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let me just show you a few verses up here that talk about filling and fullness, and hopefully we'll get the idea here. Ephesians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 Um, talks about the fullness of the times. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That's talking about the climax of all history looking forward to the time when Jesus Christ will be exalted. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22-23, Paul writes this, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Ephesians 5.18, we read this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And one more verse I'll share with you, Romans 8, 28 and 29. We don't see filling or fullness, but I think this conveys the idea here. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, this is important. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to what? The image of his son. You know what God's plan for you is once he saves you is to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we see at the end of verse 19 that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, it's that God would complete all of his goodwill in you. That he would complete all that he has called you to do. That his will would be fulfilled in the way you are living, in the way you are you're walking in this life. And that brings us to the end of Part three and part four is just going to have to wait until next week as we get to this uh, doxology of praise from the Apostle Paul to God. But as we consider what we have covered, you know, I've talked about in the beginning how the antidote to legalism, the antidote to legalism is really knowing the Bible and understanding our motivations. 
And um, Cindy, if you can go all the way to the end, the last slide should be principles for application. As we take a look at principles for application, here's some things I just want to leave you with. Um, One is intercession. You know, in this prayer that Paul bows his knee before God the Father, his prayer is not for himself. You realize that? His prayer is for the church. His earnest prayer is that the church would be strengthened in the inner man, that the church would have Jesus Christ dwelling in their hearts, that that the church would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and the breadth and the length and the width of the love of God, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. So as we consider Paul's example, are you regularly coming to God to intercede for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? We have a lot of people in need. We have a lot of people that draw a lot of encouragement just from prayer. If you have an opportunity to call someone, to visit them, to sit down with them, talk to them, and just pray with them, that is a tremendous encouragement. And then in addition, are you praying for the same things that Paul prayed for? You see, when we pray for things, we often pray for temporal things. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that's wrong. But the priorities that we see in Paul are always eternal. And so even as we pray for ourselves and our fellow brothers and sisters, are we praying for things that matter eternally? Are we praying for their growth? Are we praying that God would sustain them? Are we praying that even in their trials, in their difficulties, that God would glorify his name through them, even if God may not heal them? Are we praying for God's will there? And then the second principle I would bring up is, does the love of Christ dwell within you? Does the love of Christ dwell in you? In other words, is Christ preeminent in your life? Is he the center and focus of your life? Are your decisions motivated by a desire to glorify him? We make decisions every day. We make a multitude of decisions every day. How often do you stop and think, what decision would glorify God? We need to start thinking these ways. And does your life reflect one that has been rooted and grounded in the love of God? Does your life reflect one whose life has been rooted and grounded in the love of God? Because it's possible for us to have been saved and yet go out and not express love for other people. It's possible for us to be saved and to go out and for other people not to be able to see a difference if we're being careless or sloppy or if we're giving into the flesh. But if you're drawing upon the power of God, if you're in the word, if you're learning more about God, if you're just seeking to to address the areas of your life that need to be improved, the areas of sin that needs repenting of, you will start to show the world what it means to be rooted and grounded in love. And certainly, as I've been exhorting you week after week, your love for one another, Jesus Christ said, they, they will know you by your love for one another talking about his disciples. And finally, not only does the love of Christ dwell within you, but do you dwell in the love of Christ? Are you seeking to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge? Because there's only one place you can get that. It has to start here in Scripture. It has to start with your study of God's Word. Too often we have a consumer mindset and we come to church and we just want to be given a quick and easy checklist of things that we can do during the week. When the fact is, God calls us to dwell upon his truth, to dwell upon his word. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know this Lord Jesus Christ, let me take this moment to share the gospel. That all of us will stand in judgment before God. All of us have to stand in judgment and these sins that we have committed, because all of us are sinners. 
All of us will have to give an account and none of us will be justified. None of us will be found innocent. Because God's standard is perfect holiness. He demands absolute perfection. So if you're here this morning and you have not given your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, let me explain to you why you need to do that. Because you can never pay for your sins before a holy God. Your good works can never outweigh your bad. Even one sin and you stand guilty. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died as a perfect God-man. He died in order to pay for those sins that we can never pay for ourselves. And without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all of us would be burning in hell for all of eternity, paying for what we have done. But the solution is actually very simple. It doesn't require you to do works. It doesn't require you to prove your goodness. It doesn't require you to do anything because you are incapable of proving your goodness. What it simply requires is for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he paid for your sins on the cross, and that you repent of your sins. And by repenting, it means that you make a commitment to turn away from your former way of living and that now you will follow Jesus Christ. And that your life will now become a vessel of the glory and the holiness of our God. All you need to do is confess. Confess before holy God your need for Jesus Christ. Confess that you are a sinner in need of that Savior. And confess that you are repenting of your sins to follow him. And he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit who will give you the power to glorify him. Now, beloved, as we close out, I hope that uh, these lessons have been helpful. I mean, this prayer from Paul is absolutely magnificent. And when we see and we're, we're thinking about this prayer of Paul, Paul's prayer is to God to empower you. And he prayed that knowing that God would give it to us. We have that power available to us. We simply need to trust and obey and to follow after God no matter what the circumstances are. Let's close in prayer.